You're listening to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast with Jody Livingston, episode number 20. Yay, number 20. Welcome to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast, helping you survive and thrive in youth ministry. And now your host, Jody Livingston. Well, hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. Wherever you are and wherever this finds you, thanks for making this podcast today a part of your day. If it's your first time checking out the podcast and listening in, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Fantastic interview today for you to jump over and check out. And if you're coming back, thanks again for coming back. I hope you're finding the podcast helpful. I hope you're finding some takeaways with each episode you can take back and help you in your ministry, strengthen that. And uh, today I know you certainly will. If you're finding the podcast helpful, I would appreciate it so very much if you'd head over to iTunes, write and leave a review there. It is extremely helpful for me and for the podcast. You can go to thelongerhall.com slash iTunes to check that out. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Jody Livingston, that's J-O-D-Y. And, of course, the longer haul over on the Facebook. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode you can find at the show notes page at thelongerhaul.com slash episode 020. That's thelongerhaul.com slash episode 020. Today's episode is going to be amazing. Uh... I had so much fun with today's interview and just enjoyed this conversation so much. Today, we have on the show Marco from the Youth Cartel. Aside from just being a great guy, he knows a ton about student ministry. He's been doing this a long, long time, and I appreciate it so much. He's still very much in the trenches, still volunteers as a middle school youth leader, small group leader, mentors a ton of youth pastors, so very much in the trenches, not not somebody just outside of the realm of youth ministry that used to do it, that's now speaking back into it, but somebody who's very passionate about it, passionate about helping and equipping youth pastors and seeing teens' lives change. This guy definitely has forgotten more about youth ministry than most of us will ever learn, and just really, really smart. Youth Cartel is a great resource, man. They do so much for youth ministries, and today he's going to tackle in this really four qualities or four steps or four traits of a vibrant youth ministry. I think you'll find these really helpful and really, really encouraging. Just a great, great interview. The great thing about these qualities or characteristics that he's going to give is they they really are not dependent on the size of your ministry. They are not dependent on the size of your budget. They are not dependent on your geographical location. They're not dependent on really anything. All of these things can very much be present in any student ministry, any youth ministry. And so as you're listening to these, I think you'll find these things really applicable to your own situation, your own context, regardless of what that is. So I know you're going to learn a ton. With all that said, we'll jump in here to the interview with Marco. And man, I'm excited to have you on the show for sure. Benefited greatly from your ministry over the years. Um, Thanks, man. For those listening who may not be super familiar with you, will you uh, just take a moment, kind of introduce yourself, a little of your history, your journey into youth ministry thus far? Yeah, you bet. Um, So I've been doing youth ministry a long time, man, Uh, 34 years or so. Um, 
grew up in Detroit and had uh, junior high pastor positions in a handful of churches, slowly moving west, Chicago, Omaha, L.A. area. Uh, somewhere along the line, I started uh, speaking and writing uh, and did a bunch of stuff for you specialties. And then eventually in, in 98, I went on staff at you specialties for th- three years. I was the publisher. And then for another eight years, I was the president there. Uh, and then it, some things shifted around there in uh, like 2009. I went off on my own and started this little thing called the Youth Cartel. And we are a small, nimble, edgecraft organization trying to resource and encourage youth workers. And we publish a dozen books a year and we put on about 10 training events every year. And we, uh, we do a year-long coaching program for uh, about 50 people a year, and uh, and then we do consulting work. And I'm a volunteer youth worker at my local church. I've been a junior high small group leader there for 16 years in a row, and absolutely love that. I've got seventh grade guys as my small group right now. That's me. That's awesome. And I know you have a huge heart for middle school. Yeah. yeah I think I yeah. think you either love middle school or you, you put up with middle schoolers. It seems like yeah. I, I think there's a, a, a natural wiring or not. <laughs> yeah, I love them, man. Well, they believe anything sure. you say. They'll mm-hmm. they'll do anything you ask them. They're still figuring out life. Um, I had a I had a boss uh, early in my youth ministry career say to me that junior hires, in order to build a relationship with them, the only question they're asking is, "Do you like me?" Yeah. Um, and that high schoolers care about that, but they also add, and do I like you? And college <laughs> students care about both of those questions, but add a third one, which is, do I like what you stand for? Mm. Um, and yeah, so I mean, in a sense, I find junior high ministry much easier than high school or college ministry. And I don't mean that in a, like, like a way that I'm lazy. It's yeah. just a natural fitting for me. And maybe that's because of my immaturity or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Yeah. I think we all relate. We all relate. We we all we. I love working with middle schoolers, and I, man, I love those guys. They're so fun. But I would never want to be a middle schooler again. So, oh well, I'm yeah, I'm with you on that. I'll take it yeah, from this side. Sure. So we're but gonna. I wouldn't want to be a high schooler or a college student again either. Oh, gosh, no, no, <laughs> no. I don't like. I don't like getting older, but I don't. I don't want to go back that far. That would be. Yeah. That'd be terrible. Uh, so we're going to tackle this issue of a vibrant youth ministry, what that looks like, and kind of what are some things that, that have to be present in, in a vibrant youth ministry. So when you think, when you're thinking of a vibrant youth ministry, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, when I picture a vibrant, I mean, it looks so many different ways. That's yeah. actually, I suppose, embedded in the um, stuff we're going to talk about here is that I've just really come to see over the last uh, 10 years or so that the best youth ministries in 2015, they're all different. They have a wide variety of uh, forms and programs and uh, values. So it's not that they're, there's, you know, it's not that I would say, oh, a vibrant youth ministry is one that has a great youth center and a specific approach to small groups and this and that, right? It's it's not about that kind of stuff. There's all they're unique and they're weird. Yeah. So a vibrant youth ministry, for from my perspective, is one that um, uh, 
I mean, it's almost something more like you can smell than you can um, than you can articulate. And I don't mean that literally, but right there's the smell test that you'd use right. on a on a jug of milk to see if it's fresh or sour, right? <laughs> uh, and that's almost you know, it's like, is there a sense of life here? Are mm. people is there energy? Do we sense that the presence of God is with this group? Are are teenagers engaging with the gospel? Are, is there space for them to ask honest questions? Is there meaningful belonging extended to everyone prior to belief? Uh, those mm. kinds of things. Is there a, um, a volunteer team that is a genuine sense of community in and of itself, that those volunteers love each other and want to be together um, and have a shared sense of calling? You know, is there a leader who ex- who expresses uh, both a passionate commitment to the cause or the mission, as well as a genuine sense of humility? Um, so, I mean, those kinds of things are, I guess, what I would look for in describing a vibrant youth ministry. Yeah, and I think when I'm man, when I was thinking through that too, you know, before before we were talking, that those are the things that I think you see present. And w- what I like about what you're saying is, it's not those things. Those things can be present regardless of the size of church, regardless of size of budget, regardless of, of location or demographic or the culture you're in. You know, those are Absolutely. those are very principle based. You know, I grew up in a big church um, and you know was in a large youth ministry, and that was my perspective of what good youth ministry looked like. Hmm. Uh, and so, even when I moved into you know training others and stuff like that. And even though I would give like mental assent to the idea that bigger doesn't equal better <clears throat> and that small churches can have great youth ministries, I think I still had a, for many years, decades even, I had a subconscious, uh, I think very American perspective that bigger does equal better and that um, – you know that if you have a bigger or a or rapidly growing youth ministry, then you as the leader um, are worthy of being listened to. That you have more worth as a person. That those all mm. sound horrible, but that was the kind of subconscious belief. And that if you're in a small church or have a small youth ministry, you're just not doing something right. That's right. The kind right. Of was right. the thing that I held to. Uh, and I will say that I I. I even at some kind of a heart level held on to that, although, again, I would have never said it um, and would have disagreed with somebody if they uh, proposed that. It wasn't until I started this coaching program where I was meeting over the course of a year uh, in real honest and intimate settings with groups of youth pastors, many of which, uh, not all of them, but many of which were in smaller ministries Hmm. and just started to see so much beautiful stuff. And to be honest, it's not only that there's awesome, beautiful things happening in a lot of small churches and small youth ministries. The The other side of that coin is that the larger you get, the easier it is to be seduced by the wrongheaded idea that your resources are what lead to transformation of, to, of teenagers. That's so And good. that just is, it's just not the case, but it's really easy to find yourself in that cul-de-sac and not be able to find a way out of it, to think that my budget 
or the size and the momentum that comes with this many teenagers in a room or our cool technology and awesome screens and laser light show, that that's the stuff that actually transformed lights or even our slick and robust set of programs. And that's not what, what changes teenagers' lives exclusively is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's yeah. not in our power to change lives. And then we look at what research is telling us in youth ministry field about what's super important for teenagers to have a faith that is sustainable beyond their youth group experience. And it's all stuff that really easily fits into a small youth ministry and is more of a challenge for larger youth ministry. Things like getting kids to really verbalize what they believe and to ask questions uh, and, you know, being known and being known by, an, uh, by multiple adults in the church. And th- those kind of things that I've come to say that small churches and small youth ministries have a shorter pathway to great youth ministry. I'm not saying that small youth ministries are all good and big youth ministries are bad. Not at all. There's some wonderful large church youth ministries and there's some really mediocre and horrible small church youth ministries. I just think that larger churches actually have a harder time because they get seduced by their resources. Well, you've got more moving pieces to manage. Um, Sure, it's way more complex. I can remember, so my first youth pastorate, I was 18, I was at a church that had about 50 people on homecoming, you know, when everybody who left the church came back. And then uh, the youth group, maybe five kids, if everybody came, brought a friend. And I went to a youth specialties conference in Nashville, Uh Tennessee. And Uh it was the first one I'd been to. And I remember just being so overwhelmed with everything and and yet excited and inspired. And I came back and there was just the whole time there, I, it was there was such this struggle. And even following that, I was reading every book I could find. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was making stuff up. And I would sit, I remember sitting um, one Wednesday night, we were sitting in, in, in kind of the room. I had five kids there. And I just remember looking at the kids and going, man, what if God just really showed up in these kids' lives tonight? And, <laughs> and I just said, you know what? We're going to do something different. We're, I'm not going to teach tonight. We're not, we're going to do th- we're not, no games. We're just going to pray. Can we just pray? Is that weird if we just do that? And, <laughs> and uh, this one girl, Pam, she said, that's weird if we just do that, but I think we should. <laughs> I think we should. And we did. And we just, we just, we just started praying and, from that, just, it, God just opened such a door for that ministry there, and man, kids started moving on Sunday mornings to the altar to pray for their parents and pray for our church, and we did, um, uh, two months later, that same girl comes back and says, hey, I want to do a lock-in, but I just want to pray. Can we just come and do a lock-in and pray all night? So, huh. I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't even, I'm, I, you know, I'm 18 years, I don't know if I can pray all night. <laughs> At 18, I can't, 30 minutes in, I'm running out of stuff, you know, and so... Yeah. That's what we did. We just came, we just prayed over everything in the church. That's all I knew to do. Let's pray for every chair, pray for a pew, the pulpit, the choir loft, pray for each other. And man, it was so good. I, and now, you know, that would be really difficult to pull off with, with a larger youth ministry that I'm in. Sure. Not that it couldn't happen, but it was, Uh it was so rich and so good. Um, Steve, Steve Parr was on, Steve Parr is uh, with the Georgia Baptist Convention here in Georgia. He's just done a ton of research on why kids stay. So a lot of stuff on why folks are leaving has been written, and they've gone and surveyed people who stayed in church after graduation 
and what were the common things there. And he came on and shared a ton of those. And it's like what you're saying, those things that he shared are doable in a small church really easily. Uh Uh-huh. And and, and very, and, and it was so encouraging to hear what he was sharing because, man, I think everybody who listens to that episode can sit there and go, man, I can do that. You know, I yeah, can do that. Right. I don't need a big budget to do that. Uh-huh. So, so yeah. good. Cool. So what are some things then, we're talking about the vibrant ministry here, what are some characteristics or what are some things that are needed, uh, some some steps there to having that? <clears throat> yeah, you know, I was sitting in, uh, in one of my coaching groups uh, a couple months ago, and conversation was going on about something, I don't even remember exactly what, but something around this thing. And this, it kind of hit me, uh, and I jotted some quick notes to myself and then eventually ended up writing this on a flip chart that I, I think there's four, there's four primary dynamics or steps, you could even call them. I'm a little, t- little tongue-in-cheek when I say four steps to Vibrant Youth Ministry because um, any of my friends who know me or people who know me even in the youth ministry world would know that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty averse to oversimplifying things and the idea of four steps to anything excellent (laughs) is something I find pretty absurd. So I'm kind of saying that a little bit tongue in cheek, but I do think there's four attitudes or four perspectives that, man, I I would say they are common to great youth ministries in 2015 in a way that wouldn't have been true 10 or 15 years ago. Like some of these might have been uh, there to one degree or another, but they have become increasingly important uh, in our current reality with a splintered youth culture uh, and so many other factors that we're facing. So real quick, I'll give you the overview and then we can talk about each one of them. Okay. Um, number one is embrace change as normative, lean into it. Number two, develop a culture of experimentation. Number three, cultivate the skill and practice of collaborative discernment. And number four, contextualize. That's good. So those, th- those are the four steps. So go, let's go back to the beginning. Embrace change as normative. Lean into it. I, I just, uh, we live in a day and age where we can't assume that we are climbing a gradual incline. It's a mountain climb and we're going to reach, we're going to arrive at, the place of perfection at the top, right? Right. That eventually we're going to figure out the right approach to youth ministry and have the right programming pieces in place, and we're going to lock it down and just ride that wave, baby. That just (laughs) doesn't happen anymore. Just doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you look at, even just from a technology standpoint, of how quickly our culture changes and moves, and our students are so caught them that, that's the world they're living in um, and that brings so so much change so rapidly to them that they are so accustomed yeah. to change and if, if things yeah, totally. if, and if it doesn't change they move on they get bored and, and move on and so even in our ministries from yeah. that extent if we fail to change or to be looking to what changes need to be made to continue to keep I think we lose them yeah I y- I think you're right, so I'm not disagreeing with you, but I will say that human beings are pretty change-resistant. 
Yeah. Um, so there's maybe I'd say that's a paradox because teenagers today are used to change. It's a normal thing for them. But they still very much, just like adults, yep. find uh, safety and security in what's known. And so change can be a sense of upheaval that's not welcomed. Right. So anytime, anytime you instigate um, some kind of change in your youth ministry, you will definitely get resistance from students and from parents and from church leaders. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I would say if you don't bring change, you'll lose them. Yeah. Um, but I think you'll lose them because it'll end up becoming stagnant. Well, and I think that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. I just wrote a post on, uh, you know, how to, how to make changes without getting fired on the longer haul. And <laughs> in that, I'm kind of, I just kind of walk through kind of a process that we kind of go through and we start evaluating that. What, is that. what does that look like when we start making changes? And, you know, there's certain things you have to do to make those and to do those well. You've got to understand and know the culture of your church and where you're at and how to do that, how to, how to kind of a, to, to really bring about and motivate what needs to be made, right? You got to know why you're changing it. You can't just change it for the sake of changing. Totally. Um, and I think that's where a lot of times we go wrong. We don't understand the culture we're in. You know, you, you kind of get someplace new. You don't really take the time to invest there. And you don't really know why. You're just changing it because it uh-huh. worked at a previous church or you saw it down the street work or it just seems like a good idea. So you just kind of go in and you make the change too quickly. You don't really get the buy-in. I think, yeah. you know, let me let me kind of uh, frame my statement there because I, I, I don't want to be taken as saying we've got to constantly be changing or students will stop coming. And then that's kind of what I said or how it came out. I guess what I'm meaning in that is if we're not making changes to to impact and influence and reach them where they are, which is constantly changing as a culture, then we won't be effective to be able to keep and reach. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yep. So right. And I think yep. we do it. We I think there's two things we make mistakes when it comes to change. Either we don't make it when we should, or we make it before we should. And so there's a pace sure. there that's so important. And, and I think uh, what my primary thing I'm saying here is that it's a mindset. Yeah. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that um, at that your highest value is to constantly make changes. Right. I'm suggesting that we need to uh, adopt a mindset that um, we are not trying to reach a place of being static. Like we're not trying to arrive at the right program. Right. Uh, instead, that we are working from an assumption that everything we do is provisional and that we're always going to be looking for ways to modify and change and launch new things and stop things that aren't working. And that is directly tied. I would say it's just a precursor to the other steps in this, in this, uh, these four, you know, doing that by itself is, is not enough at all. Right. So the second one is develop a culture of experimentation. Um, I was yesterday, I was in Charlotte and I was, um, uh, leading one of my coaching groups there, and uh, and I was teaching them this uh, change theory called Theory U, developed by an MIT professor named Otto Scharmer. And in it, he's got one of these steps that I think a lot of churches and businesses too, for that matter, miss. And it's uh, that when we're starting new things, after we sense God's leading on something, then we crystallize it, which is his way of describing how we put language to it and flesh out the idea. And then we prototype it. 
And that's like the beta testing of things. And uh, what I suggested, and that's still prior to being like committed to something, uh, you know, and saying this is who we are and what we do. And my suggestion to the youth workers that I was meeting with is that when we prototype things, when we experiment and hold to things provisionally, say that this might change, we're trying it, that we are remaining then open. We are not controlling. We're remaining open to the possibility that we might not have completely understood what God was leading us to. Hmm. And so we experiment, we prototype, we beta test with change. And then, uh, then we go back to discernment to listen some more to what God might be saying. Okay, that was 75%. That was good. But let's see if we can tweak that a little bit to move it toward best. So, yeah, it's developing a culture of experimentation where we're going to try new things. And we're great with failure. That's failure is fine if it allows us to learn. Um, but we're always going to be noodling with and uh, trying little experiments to see what different trailheads might be worthy of exploration. So how do you, how do you go about beginning to build a culture like that? I mean, is that because yeah. I'm th- I'm listening to that and I totally agree with with what you're saying. But I'm thinking of folks who are serving with uh, underneath maybe a pastor or some leadership that there's no room to fail. There's no there's yeah. a lot of pressure there to succeed. And right, I mean, I, I I guess I would say at the basic response is that you explain why that's not true. That if we want to succeed, we have to experiment. And we have to fail. Yeah. You know, uh, and man, there's no question that great business leaders know this. Um, you know, I mean, you look at somebody like Apple or something like that, right? I mean, they totally know this. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I, I think it's a, a beautiful, even biblical idea. So the idea that there, everything has to be perfect the first time is just ludicrous. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, I mean, you can respond that we're still hoping for great ministry success and that we, we want to see major wins. But in order to get there, we need to, we need to experiment so that we can uh, really see if we are correctly leading, uh, following the leading of the Holy Spirit. I mean, really, again, this comes down to the third step, which is cultivate the skill and practice of collaborative discernment. Uh, I hope everybody listening to this podcast doesn't want to develop the best idea of youth ministry that they can come up with. I hope that what you want is to become the ministry that God desires you to be. That will always be your best expression of youth ministry. It's the same with you as a person. I want to be I want to continue to be transformed so that I could be the best Marco, the one that God has always dreamed that I could be. And I want the same for our youth ministry. I hope that's what you want for your ministry. God has amazing dreams for what your youth ministry could become. I want all of us to lean into that, not just the skill or ability or brainstorming that I have, right? Right. So if we're going to do that, then it's always about experimenting in order to follow the trail of the leading of the Holy Spirit, the still small voice of God. And that requires this uh, skill and practice of collaborative discernment because 
I'm not, you know, Moses. I'm not, I don't have the ability to climb up to the top of Mount Sinai and go in a cave and have God reach down with his finger and write some stone tablets, right? Right. Um, and yes, God does give me promptings and leadings myself, but I believe in ministry, the best discernment is done collaboratively. And most of us are not very good at that. We've never really practiced that. Yeah, and I don't, I think a lot of youth pastors just struggle with, with even where to start with that. And I think... I don't know. I I've, I think there's always a feeling of pressure on you too as youth pastor. Like, it's all on me to make this happen, and if this ministry fails, it's my fault. And I, I yeah, think that's so that I, is so condemning. Yeah, I, I also think um, that varies from church to church. Sure. But yes, I would say that is more so true uh, in more conservative churches yeah. than it is in more progressive churches, uh, and it's probably more true in the South in a more over, uh, overly churched area than it would be elsewhere. Because elsewhere, I think a lot of church leaders are just, cl- they're clearly away from experience. Uh, we're going to have to experiment because, man, nobody's got the silver bullet here. Right. right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I'm listing. So, so far, these things, I mean, these are, these are not things that are going to happen overnight. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Like you, you, oh, totally. This is something you yeah. work towards and build to baby steps along the way. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there aren't quick fixes. Yeah. When you're when you're talking about kind of collaborative ministry here, are you thinking primarily within your your team there at your church, your leadership, or are you thinking outside yeah, I mean, of the I'd walls love of you it. even? Like, yeah, great. I'd love to see it be a value across the church, but I'm specifically talking about in the youth ministry team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, as the youth pastor, who are you pulling together? And it might not exactly be like your volunteer team. You right. might find that you have volunteers who are really great at youth ministry and building relationships with teenagers and leading them in discussions and stuff like that, but aren't really the best people to um, sit with you in the process of collaborative discernment. You might find that you've got that 75-year-old grandma in your church who uh, as an, an amazing prayer life and really hears from God and is very supportive of the youth ministry, but she's not going to go on an overnighter or even lead a small group. Um, but man, she would, she'd be great to partner with in discerning where is God leading us as a ministry. Right? That's good. That's so good. I love that. Love that. Okay. So yeah, we're the- embracing the, this, this change as normative, right? Developing yeah. this culture, um, of that experimentation. It, of experimentation, and then there's this collaborative discernment that's taking place. Yeah, and then, and then the- contextualize. Um, I would say that you know I've created four. We'll come back and talk about that contextualization in a second. But the it, we're saying there's four steps here. But if you wanted to make it boil it down even more to two steps, it's these last two. I yeah. I think for so many years in youth ministry, we said that the skills needed to be a great youth worker are, oh gosh, back in the you know seventies, it was you need to play the guitar and you need <laughs> to be able to speak the right lingo, the teen lingo, and you need to, right. And then I think in, as youth ministry got more professionalized, we talked about you need the skill of counseling, you need a uh, speaking ability. You need to be able to preach the word in a uh, developmentally uh, and stylistically appropriate way for teenagers. Uh, you need to be able to think programmatically, right? So we these yeah. were the skill sets that we said you needed. I'm saying that those are all good. 
but they're not the most important in 2015. They're nice to have. The most important two skills to have as a great youth worker in 2015 is that you know how to lead collaborative discernment and that you know how to contextualize. That if you don't have those, your ministry is always going to be less than it could be, unless God does some work that's beyond you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the contextualization thing really comes from uh, acknowledging the reality that um, even though uh, it's almost like we went through a, a period of time where you know, for a long time, we were very regionally dispersed in the U.S. And then because of mass media, youth culture became very same. Everything, you know, we, we commented in the 80s and 90s about how teenagers uh, uh, in different parts of the world, but certainly in different parts of the U.S., they were all the same because of the homogeneity that uh, mass media brought, right? Yeah. So, in, in 1990s, uh, if you were a fan of Nirvana, and uh, I was watching the Kurt Cobain documentary last night, so that's why this is on my brain right now. If you were a fan of Nirvana, right, and you lived in in Washington or you lived in Florida, you could kind of be almost like uh, indiscernibly uh, not different, yeah. right? So we just were fine. But that's gone again. We've like moved back, and it's not so much regionalized, although that is one factor. Um, it's that there's a splintering of everything and every youth group is unique. It really is. And so the best, the best youth groups, and I'm telling you, my work allows me to interact with thousands of youth workers, right? And yeah. I see lots of youth ministries. And I will promise you the best youth ministries are always weird, they're always unique. They embrace their oddity. They hmm. know what is unique about their context, their culture, their regional distinctives, the uniquenesses of their church, its theology, its history, its values, um, its practices, its strengths and its weaknesses. They know who uh, that what teenagers God has already brought to us and who we're trying to reach. They know their own stories and failures and successes and dreams and uh, how all of that integrates into ministry and all of that kind of stuff together. That's the context. And great youth ministry, including the programs uh, at great youth ministries, are born in response to the context, first out of discernment and then secondarily out of in response to context. Gosh, that's so good. I just um, I just read. There's two. It seems like every year there's a book I read that just kind of shakes me and rocks me, and it comes a little unexpected. Uh -huh. And uh, I read this book called Bruchko by Bruce Olson. Mm -hmm. um, have you read uh, that? I read that. I read it in junior high, man. Yeah, it okay. rocked my world as so, a junior high guy. Yeah. I've I've read that book probably two two or three times uh, in the last six months, well, in the last few months, really, five, four months, I just keep going back to it. And, you know, here's this guy trying to reach these, this Indian tribe that no one's been able to touch. And he's wa walking through and seeing all these people failing to do exactly what you're describing. He's, they're bringing with them their culture, their expectations, uh -huh. their, their Western. Yeah. And every time I read the book or I come back to it, I think about student ministry and not that all of our students are kind of some wild tribe out in the jungle trying to kill us, although maybe at times <laughs> we feel like that. Yeah. But, right. you know, that's the task we've been given, is how do we take the gospel 
to them in their culture, in their context, not, not step away from, you know, our doctrine, not step away from the theology of that, not step away from the gospel of that, but how do we bring it to them where they are, meet them where they are, and, and be able to, to bring that to them? And um, I, man, I think I see a lot of folks, that's a, that's a hard thing for, to do. That's not easy to do, that contextualization. Yeah. Because no, we, I, we're comfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we, it's another thing that, like, it requires us to have uh, an open mind to the fact that culture has changed. Because, yeah. again, f- 15 years ago, we were still talking about the sameness of youth culture uh, and how it's all been homogenized. Uh, because of media, and it's it's just not anymore, right? Because somewhere yeah. around ten years ago, roughly, youth culture splintered. Prior to that, this is a very important reality for youth workers to understand. Prior to somewhere around the turn of the millennium, and it wasn't exactly one time, one moment in time, but um, there was one monolithic youth culture, and of course, there were some kids who didn't fit into that. But in general, majority, if you looked at the average American high school. There was one giant power pyramid, uh, and this is why, you know, say like Young Life uh, ministry philosophy used to be reach the key influencers and you can reach the whole philosophy. It was almost like a Reaganomics trickle-down power structure of, <laughs> uh, of how youth relationships worked, right? right. Uh, and that has splintered into thousands of youth cultures. The reason for that splintering is interesting to me. It's because of my generation, the baby boomers – we are the first generation in the history of the United States who have not looked forward to growing older and the respect that comes with that and instead have looked backward and tried to hold on to the values and even behaviors of our youth. And so we elevated youth culture as this awesome thing. And we started, we really were responsible for making youth culture the dominant culture in America. But youth culture doesn't want to be the dominant culture in America. It wants to be other and so it responded by splintering. And as a result, we have thousands of youth cultures in America today. Every youth group is multicultural today, whether there's racial or economic diversity or not. Uh, and that creates all new kinds of challenges for us that I think in some ways call for these questions that we're talking about and the need for contextualization. Yeah. And you've got to get out of your office. <laughs> you've got to go yeah. have real conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I yeah, think, really, it doesn't yeah. work anymore to like look at the big successful church across the country or even down the street and copy what they're doing. Right. That kind of worked. I think it's a theologically problematic, but it, it kind of worked in 1985 to do that. That doesn't work anymore. Right. You might be able to get some principles that you then modify or some best practices that you then contextualize for your setting, but you can't just copy, you know? There's yeah. a large youth ministry in the United States that used to franchise themselves, literally, quite literally. They would sell franchises. And, um, and then you'd get the name, but you'd get the ministry model and the approaches and the curriculum and the talks and everything, the whole thing. And that, even though it turned my stomach and made me angry, uh, that kind of worked for some people in 1985. It does not work anymore. Yeah. Culture's changed too much for that. Well, and there's, you know, the students that we serve, the teens that we're serving, this generation, there's, there's such a hunger for a community. And you, I think you see that lived out even in yeah. these principles. Like all of these kind of revolve yeah. around just an authentic community. Um, uh-huh. And yep. you, don't, you don't have to be the cool guy. You don't have to be the extrovert. 
You don't have to be anything. You you just just be you. Love on some teens and man, steer them to Jesus. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Okay, let's. Good. Can, can we talk about hope casting just briefly? I know you just. You, oh, you, of course. New book, right? Yeah. Just out recently. Um, yeah, it's you know after I I've written uh, written over seventy books. Uh, a lot of them are curriculum books, you know and wrote a bunch of curriculum for junior high ministry and stuff over the years. A lot of it's not even in print anymore. But every book I've ever written has either been for youth workers, mostly, or for teenagers, or for parents of teenagers. And this was the first book, excuse me, the first book I wrote for a broader Christian audience. So it's kind of a big step for me. Yeah. And yeah, it's a popular level theology of hope. Um, I don't know that I knew that's what I was setting out to write. I just knew I was going to write a book about hope. Uh, and suddenly was confronted by the fact that, oh my gosh, this is actually a book of theology. I better make sure I'm saying something that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. And that was born out of a trip to Haiti? Am I right? Yeah, I think it was more than that, but um, that was certainly one of the primary ahas. Yeah. Uh, when I lost my job at Youth Specialties, which was just because of a business decision from our foreign, former parent company, a, a big Christian publisher, um, but it was kind of handled poorly, and it put me in a place of, in the book I call it exile. Yeah. It was put me in a place where I just wasn't sure what my future was, and I, f- I felt really isolated and lost. And it was in the context of that that I went to Haiti three weeks after the earthquake. It was a little consulting gig. I actually took about seven youth pastors on a little exploration trip to see if it was legit to bring youth groups or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was really confronted uh, with a giant aha. I was standing in the middle of a, a street. Uh, there was a massive group of probably a thousand people in what I thought was a protest. And I got in the middle of it. I was by myself at that moment. And, uh, and I suddenly noticed a bunch of things. It was because they were speaking Creole, I, I, I wasn't you know, I was still holding on to this idea that it was a protest and I wasn't catching that it was something other than that because of the language difference. And then I noticed, but these people are smiling and they're dancing. Oh, and that's a stage down there. Oh, that's a band. Oh, that's a worship band. Oh, these people are praising God. And in the midst of that, it like I realized all of these people have lost more than I will ever lose in my life. They're experiencing so much pain, and yet they have such an intensity of hope in this moment. Yeah. And, and that verse, that Pauline verse from Romans popped into my head at that moment. I'd memorized it as a little kid. For We rejoice in our sufferings because sufferings uh, lead to perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character lead to hope, and hope does not disappoint, right? That yeah. verse— and it struck me, these people know hope in a way that I never will, and it's because of their suffering. Yeah, and that was, led me to rethinking of hope, that it's not about optimism. It's mm-hmm. something much more than that. That's, that's so good. I was there two years after the earthquake. So I was mm-hmm. in Port-au-Prince mm-hmm. two years after. Yeah. Having not been there prior, prior to that, you know, I don't know what it looked like then, but my initial response seeing and driving through Port-au-Prince, seeing the presidential palace still in shambles. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, yeah. the, the the bodies were gone, but the tent cities yeah. were still very much, it looked like it had just happened. I mean, yeah. if you had told right. me that, if I didn't know 
you know, how long ago it happened, I would never have believed you. And I, and I remember, I remember really clearly standing in some of those tents, in those tent cities, you know, covered with Samaritan's uh-huh. purse, tarps. And I sat, I remember in one house specifically, or tent, it was a family of five, and there were two bunks, very small bunks, and just a set of shelves. And I could uh-huh. touch all four walls from the center with my arms. And uh, yeah. they invited uh. me in, here, have a seat, uh, just smiles. And so the hope you're talking about, man, I, I saw that firsthand. And I'm like you, I came away just, I would say humble. I want Humbled is probably the, the more respectable word, but really, if I'm honest, it was probably more of humiliated. I just thought, gosh, look at me. Like what is, you know? Does that you know what I'm saying? Like, uh huh. Yeah. Look at look at me, man. So, so good. And the book, it's on Amazon. It's it's out oh, about yeah. Youth Cartel website. So definitely go. Yeah. Hope casting, hope casting is so what good. It's called. Yep. And cool. do you have a resource before we go that you throw out and recommend? Ah oh, man. Or two. I'm know. gonna give you one book and one uh, event. How okay. about that? That'd be awesome. I'm going to recommend a book that's not mine and not published by the youth cartel so that this is uh, generous and not self-serving. <laughs> okay. uh, and it's probably the best book that I've my, – my most recent favorite youth ministry book. Let's put it that way. Um, and it's called Saying is Believing by Amanda Drury. Okay. Uh, and it's just absolutely required reading for every youth worker. Uh, it's based on the research that – um, Amanda did for her PhD in youth ministry at Princeton uh, under Kenda Dean, and it's on the importance of testimony cool. uh, in uh, for teenagers and and developing a sustainable faith. So critical reading and very readable. So that's the book that you need to read. Um, and then uh, I would encourage you to check out a very unique event that the cartel does. It's called the Summit and. It will be in Nashville this uh, November, early November, and it's basically TED Talks for Youth Workers. And this year, our theme, this is the fourth year we're doing this event. We did it in Atlanta two years and then moved it to Nashville last year and this year. And our theme this year is elephants, and we're going to look at three elephants in the room of youth ministry. So we have one session where all the TED-style talks will kind of revolve around the theme of um of evangelism and apologetics. And then we have another session where all those little TED Talks will kind of revolve around immaturity and transition in youth ministry, something you mentioned at the very beginning of our time, Jody. Yeah. And then um, the last of those three sessions, we'll look at LGBT issues and how we respond. It's not about, it's not about theology, so it won't yeah. be about how to we're not going to try to convince people to change their theology in one direction or the other, but we'll be more focused on the methodology. How do we as youth workers respond and do ministry with LGBT kids? So those are the three the three kind of TED-style conferences. Yeah, so go Very to the, cool. youth, the youthcartel.com and check out the summit. Sweet. And I'll put links to both of those in the show notes for everybody. Marco, thank you so much, man. I enjoyed it. It was great. You bet, Jody. Yep. Have a great week. Awesome, man. Keep it up. Thanks. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it. Man, what a great interview. That was so fun. I uh, just love Marco. I love his heart for youth ministry and for youth pastors. And uh, man, I, I can't tell you how much I've benefited from his ministry over the years. And that, man, that interview is packed with good stuff, even beyond the context and the conversation of the vibrant 
ministry, the youth ministry there. So again, head to the show notes to check out all of the resources and links mentioned there. You can do that at thelongerhall.com slash episode 020. thelongerhall.com slash episode 020, as in 20. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to iTunes, leave a review there. That means a world to me and uh, certainly helps the podcast out a ton in the rankings so other youth pastors and youth workers can find it and listen to it and uh, and be helped along the way. And that's thelongerhall.com slash iTunes. We'll take you there really, really quickly. Well, hey, thanks for giving up some time and tuning in and listening today again. Hope you're finding it helpful. Don't forget to head over to thelongerhall.com for a whole bunch of other resources and helps along the way there, a bunch of blog posts and articles to help you build a ministry you don't want to leave. And in fact, right now, if you head over there, you can get free uh, a little thing I've put together on reasons to leave your ministry, why you should leave. I'm giving you seven reasons you should leave your youth ministry position, which I know is a little counterintuitive, but I do think there are reasons uh, valid reasons to step out of a ministry position. And so you can head over there and grab them from thelongerhall.com. That'll do it for this week. We'll see you again next week with next week's episode. And until then, give them Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Longer Hall Youth Ministry Podcast at www.thelongerhall.com. 